Let's pray as we come to God's word, shall we? Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that you are a God who speaks to us, doesn't leave us in the dark. As we look at your word now uh, in the letter of James, please help us to wrestle with it. And just as James um, urges us to be, help us to be doers of your word and just not merely listeners. And we ask this in, his, in your name. Amen. Excellent. Um, well, one of the big things that we've been saying uh, as we've looked at um, James is that uh, James is urging Christians uh, to have a genuine living faith that's not double-minded. That is one of the big issues uh, that James uh, wants Christians to avoid uh, is, um, is to have a mindset that's like that of the world around them. Uh, there is always the creep of the world into the church and James in particular doesn't want Christians to think like the world with its desires and values and agendas because fundamentally the world's way of thinking is opposed to God's way of thinking. Uh, Christians can't therefore have a foot in both camps. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. Um, uh, as James himself puts in, one, in chapter 1 verse 8, uh, a double-minded person is unstable in all they do. Like trying to put a, a foot on a boat that's heading away from the wharf and the other foot on the wharf. It's not very stable. You're going to end up wet in the end. But the thing that James often says, um, and what we noticed last week, was that Christians have a tendency to deceive themselves into thinking that they can without realizing that they are. And they act and think the same way that the world around them thinks while saying that they believe and trust God at the same time. And James gives a certain test to help us to see whether we are in fact doing that uh, so as to avoid self-deception. Um, but first what I want to do before we have a look at uh, James chapter 2 is, is, is quickly cover the ground uh, that we missed out on looking la last week in the last two verses of cha chapter 1 um, because um, uh, they're fairly key uh, for our look at uh, the book of um, James uh, altogether. But before we do that, because we've been talking about genuine living faith, I just want to ask you to just chat among yourselves just for one minute and give me three markers or a couple at least of things that if your friend comes up to you and says, how do I know that I've got a, a real living faith? What are the kinds of key things? You know, if you're concerned about someone being a Christian, what are the key markers that you're looking for uh, in them uh, living out the Christian life? So go talk among yourselves. What are the things that you would look, look out for that you think? Thank you. 
Okay, um, let's have a, a couple of things. What is any any one thing on this table? Come on. Okay, so general obe obedience to God's word. Okay, over there, back table. Just one thing. Come on, don't be shy. Bible reading. Bible reading. Very good. That's one I had. Yep, over here. Uh, a desire to draw near to God. A desire to draw near to God. Lovely. Oh, back table over here. Okay, uh, motivated by self or God, yep, here. Um, I guess ask the person your thought, his, his or her thought on like Jesus' death and resurrection and what that means. So Jesus' death and okay, yeah, so whether they really understand the gospel, yep, very good. Prayer. Prayer, yeah, so um, my three were prayer, Bible reading, going to church. I think pretty standard kind of things that I normally look out for. And I think most Christians would kind of tend to look out for at least those three. Of course, there's a whole bunch of others uh, that you're looking out for along the way. But they're the big three. If I was going to uh, have a, you know, a, a priority list in terms of what I would look out for mostly, then that, that would be uh, my priority. But not James. So James gives us an interesting list here in verses 26 and 27, not the ones that I would kind of uh, highlight, but can someone read out loudly uh, verse 26 and 27? If no one does it in two seconds, Kylie, you can do it again. Uh, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows yeah did you notice the idea of self-deception again so here's another test for you to make sure that you're not being deceived three specific practices that the christian ought to pay particular attention to to make sure that they're not just merely listeners of the word but doers as well that is that they have a genuine living faith um, normally, we would associate religion or religious with kind of a negative trait, but it's really just talking about the practices of uh, godliness or um, uh, a wonderful definition that I read just earlier was what people do to honor their God. The, the things, the practices that they do to particularly honor God. So um, James in particular is talking about not just uh, listening to the word, but doing it. What are the actions, the practices that particularly honor our God, the Christian God? And there are three things. What are they? Firstly, what are they? Boy, this interaction thing's going really well. Thank you. Looking after orphans is a one. That's the second one, actually, in the list. What's the, the first one? Or, or give me the third one. Any? To keep oneself unstained from the world. Yeah, so that's the second one, is to keep un, oneself unstained from the world or, or, or not polluted by the world, uh, as other translations put. And the first one? That's 
Yeah, keeping a tight rein on your tongue. Um, not many people pick those yeah, as their particular markets, yeah? So they kind of seem a, a little bit strange. And so my question is, why these three things in particular? So let's look at the first one, because he says, um, if anyone considers himself religious and doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, you're deceiving yourself. Why that in particular? Why this stress on keeping a tight rein on your tongue? Anyone got a, a clue? Very good. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And where does that come from? The <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, in particular, where does it come from? James. Not James. Well, it kind of. Uh, here, but not really. Um, James picks it up from somewhere. And I'm guessing, just to give you a clue, his older brother... Yeah, Jesus, very good. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Um, yes, Matthew, very good. Someone said Matthew? Yeah, very good. Matthew 12, uh, 34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, uh, jump over a couple of chapters. Matthew 15, 18. The things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make someone unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and on and on it goes. And James comes back to this issue back in, cha in, in chapter 3, and we'll look at it um, hopefully next semester. Um, that is, um, we can't see people's hearts like God can. Obviously, God can look into our hearts and he knows what we really like, but we can't. Um, uh, the mouth, what people say, Jesus tells us is a signpost to the heart. So your tongue according to James chapter 3, is a window. It doesn't look like a window, but it is. It's a window to your soul, to what's going on inside of you, to your heart. And if you believe the scriptures, and this is the point, because most of us find it really difficult to believe this. Uh, certainly the world doesn't believe this. But if you believe the scriptures, then you will know that it says, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, another wonderful memory verse that you should have. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Anyone? Okay, um, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Uh, it's desperately wicked. That's the verdict of God on our hearts. Now, if you really believe that, and if you think that your tongue is a window to your heart, then you will really work hard, therefore, at restraining the evil within. And therefore, in order to do that, you keep a tight rein on your tongue. What about the second one? Well, we'll look at this in greater application when we come to chapter 3, so we won't do it now. What about the second one? Why is looking after orphans and widows a sign of true religion? What do you think? Anyone? It's picked up a bit in the Old Testament. Yeah, um, it's picked up a bit in the Old Testament. Um, roughly any idea where? What kinds of things are picked up? Anyone? Looking after those who have no one to look after them. Yeah. Why, why are the Israelites commanded to do that? Can you remember? To be a blessing to like the people around. 
to be a blessing, certainly, yes, but there's a, a, a greater motivation that's given in the, in the scriptures. Yeah, because God himself says that I am a father to the fatherless and uh, particularly has an eye out for the widow. Uh, again and again, um, that's the way God uh, shows himself to be. Um, and so uh, according to James, this is one of the key areas where the values of the world and God's values are um, disaligned. It's really evident that they're different. Lots of people talk about caring for the poor and the marginalized, and they do uh, and make many Christians look bad in the process. So I'm not going to pay particularly attention to that. Uh, I'm acknowledging that there are people who give weight to that. But generally speaking, that is not the way our world operates. It's very much about us gaining for ourselves. It's very much about upward mobility and trying to get out of people as much as you possibly can. Um, our advertising... Uh, the workforce is built on the principle of take, 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 give me more, upward mobility, um, gaining for self so that uh, what we want are bigger houses, more possessions, better things. All the time that is being bombarded at us, mainly through advertising, and we live among people. Um, so who's still got an iPhone 4? Nope. Okay. Uh, who's got an iPhone 10? I, I shouldn't. No, I won't ask. Um, um, we're constantly craving the newest, the latest, the best. That's just the way we are because we, it's hard not to because we live in a society that tells us you should. And, and so we, we imbibe it even without realizing it. And the problem with this way of thinking is that we become what I like to call black holes. We, we, we kind of suck in everything that we possibly can from people around us, from everywhere we possibly can, where it's all about me gaining. A black hole just sucks the life out of everything around it. And, and that's the danger of us. Um, so we suck up to those who we think we can gain from. It's why we treat people above us with greater respect in the hope that something will pass back down to us. And we generally ignore or disregard those who we don't think we're going to get anything out of. And again, I think James finds his inspiration not just from the Old Testament, but from the lips of Jesus himself. Remember Jesus uh, giving a parable while he's there, or, or giving some teaching before he gives a parable, actually, uh, while he's at the dinner of Simon the Pharisee among a group of um, uh, upward mobile Pharisees. Um, it says to them in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, good for you to write this down. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And friends, this is what God is like. He is often described as the one, and we know it in the gospel, he is the one who gives to people who cannot repay him. That's what grace is. We don't deserve it. There's no way we can repay him for what he does for us and, and gives us. Um, 
but he does it because that is what he is like. He is a gracious God, a giving God. So God is not just waiting around for us to pay homage to him. And it's all about him as if he's sucking. Uh, that's the way most people think about God. He just wants to suck the life out of us. But actually, it's quite the opposite. It's very offensive to him. To, for people um, that they think of him that way. He's, he is actually the God who gives. And what we discover is he is the source of all life. And James told us last week of all good and perfect gifts. They come from him to us, not the other way around. And so what he wants is for his people to reflect that character as well, to move from the way of the world, which is all about taking and, and sucking the life out of other people and gaining for self, to being a giver, to being generous, to be looking for those who are not so popular, not so privileged, um, who, who can't um, uh, get by on their own. And to be particularly looking out for them because that is where you can give. That is the opportunity for you to be like God. It's the fundamental orientation of, of, of God and therefore it ought to be the fundamental or orientation of his people. Um, I often say that um, I, I'm always trying to look out for a new convert, what they're like. And I often say with young men, I'm, uh, the, 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 the last two bits of their anatomy to change, to repent, um, are the right foot. Um, that is, what are they like behind the wheel on a car? Um, and they're usually very, um, got a heavy uh, right foot that makes them go fast and light on the brakes. Um, uh, and the other one is their hip pocket. Um, whether they're generous, whether they are able to give, uh, because we like to keep a, a tight hold on our, uh, our wallets in our hip pocket. Uh, but God wants us to be like him, to delight in generosity. So my question to you is, do you delight in generosity? Because when they visited orphans and widows, yes, it's lovely to spend time with them, but it's more than just spending time with them. It's also about providing for them, uh, as we'll see in a, in a little while. And James, again, is big on this, um, even in the very chapter that we're going to be looking at today. And lastly, it's about keeping uh, oneself being polluted uh, by the world. We don't, um, we're running out of time, so we'll keep going. James regularly warns us against double-mindedness, yeah? We've seen that again and again. And Christians um, really need to embrace God's values against the world's values. But it's hard. And, and, we, and I think James is giving due recognition to the fact that the, that the church will always have a tendency to... Um, to absorb almost via osmosis uh, the, the values of the world. You hang around people uh, who think a certain way and it's very hard to, to not be polluted by it, to not be contaminated by their way of thinking. And Christians, though, um, although we're encouraged to, to be in the world, we're always reminded to not be of it, to not partake in the things that they delight in and to be different to the world around us. But it's very difficult. But that is one of the markers that James wants to highlight for those who truly have a genuine living faith. And he'll come back to this again in uh, chapters four onwards. 
Questions? Any questions on that? If you don't ask me questions, I'll keep asking you questions, but that's all right. What do we say to a believer that has kind of been absorbed into that, that, uh, non, that, that, that world that's outside of Christ, and it's just a res result of their environment more than anything, not necessarily malicious action, they're just kind of being surrounded by the wrong people, or the people that they're around with have been surrounded by the wrong people, so it's just kind of like a, you know, well, I think what James is doing is, is he reflecting on the words of Jesus. So I can't help but think the first thing I'd probably do is go to the words of Jesus where he's saying, you know, you're in the world, but you're not of it. Um, and, um, and I think uh, there's plenty of passages you can look at where, you know, um, uh, uh, even in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 where Paul talks about some within the church who are acting like those outside the church but really even worse than them and um, and and Paul is is urging them not to um, not to associate with people who are like that not he's not talking about not associating with people who are not like that outside but the church but not to associate with people who want to call themselves Christians and yet who live like the world um, so uh, the first thing I do is, is hopefully point out to them that that's the way that they're living. Um, but if, if it goes further than that, if they're, not, if they're refusing to repent, then that's where it gets more serious. And the Bible urges us to think about um, firstly going to them, talking to them in private. If, if they refuse to repent, then to try to bring someone else with them and then... Um, if need be, we, um, we have to kind of discipline them, particularly if it's a very public kind of sin that they're committing. Um, yeah, I don't know what you have in mind, but if it's just a friend and it's just uh, they seem to be, then I would just try to draw them back one-to-one -one and just try to show them in the scriptures what it's like. But if it's public open sin, like they're, they're publicly sleeping with their boyfriend, girlfriend or something like that, or they're not and they don't think it matters, then I'd try to help them to see that because I would say that that's, that's a fairly serious offence and that's totally being polluted by the ways of the world because that's just what the world does. Um, so I'd want to push that one further. Chris? What would you say to someone who thinks it's the corporate church's responsibility to look after, say, orphans and widows and it's the individual's responsibility to provide for the corporate church so the corporate church can look after orphans and widows, not the individual? And so thinking with broader perspective and the individual's role in that. Yeah. Um, well, if they go to a church where the, it is the corporate church's responsibility and then they can actually actively participate in that by giving more to the church, I'd say to them, well, I hope you're giving a lot to your church if that's the expectation um, that you have. Uh, so I'd be, I'd be challenging them about their own generosity to their church if that's the case. And I've got no problem with that form of, um, of partnership, if you like. But there's a, a lot of churches that don't operate that way where they actually say, we know that lots of you have different things that you want to chase after. And as a, as a council, as a church council, 
we really spend an awful amount of time just arguing about what cause to look after. So we've thought that the best way forward is for whatever cause you're interested in, you pursue that individually. So that what we're collecting as a church is really to fund what we do as a church, not to do these extra things. Uh, and I've gone to many churches that where they've uh, decided that way. And then I'd say, well, um, I can't simply pass a buck and go, well, they should be doing that. Um, um, uh, the commands are to us as individuals. Firstly, it's not to the church at large. There are some instructions to the church at large at times, um, but we're living in a society which um, we're by and large looking after the poor and the widows is done by the government, whereas a lot of that instructions given to churches in places where uh, the government has no interest in looking after the, the poor. Um, we have we fail to see the impact that Christianity has made on governments worldwide uh, if we can't see that. Um, governments worldwide never used to look after the poor at all. Um, that's been the major push of, I think, the Christian worldview on, on governments to, to do that. But up for a very long time, it was the church who was doing it and who shamed the rest of society. I mean, there's a, a great line written by um, uh, one of the, um, uh, the Roman aristocrats in, in during the, the Roman Empire who says, you know, these Christians, you know, not only are they looking after themselves really well, but they've got the audacity to be looking after our poor and our uh, widows as well. And um, uh, it was almost written like, you know, how dare they? Um, they're shaming us um, in the process of it. So, yeah, anyway. Um, can't remember what your question was, but I hope that kind of roughly answered it. Um, let's move on. Um, keep asking me questions. I'm really keen for that. Um, and we're not going to get through it. I, uh, I said to yesterday to the guys, if we get through it, there's a bit of uh, dating advice I've got at the end. Um, and we didn't get anywhere near it. So I'm... I'm just throwing it out to you now as a teaser because I know we're not going to get to it. Um, um, someone read chapter 2, verse 1 for us. Let's move on. Chapter 2, verse 1. Quick. Kylie, if no one does it, you just jump in. Okay, so the key word there is favoritism. Don't show favoritism. So my question to you in small groups, just quickly, again, one minute, um, if I can get this side of the room looking at, where do you find favoritism in the church, do you think, in your churches, your experience? And over here, where might the EU, um, where have you seen favoritism in the EU? Okay, just quickly, one minute. Okay, where do you find favoritism in the church? 
Where do you see it? Um, you said that like prioritizing like um, people who we already know in little clicks rather than people that we don't know. Yep. Yeah, so we're normally attracted to people who are like us. Yep. And whether intentional or unintentional, we therefore do uh, avoid people who are not like us. And so in a way we're showing favoritism. Yeah, very good. Uh, anything else? So people who are more outgoing and active in the church. Yeah, so we favor the more extroverted, charismatic kind of type. Yep. And also like favoritizing those who've been there for like a long time rather than like the new people. Yep, yeah, um, certainly. And uh, other groups were saying uh, as well, we tend to favor, you know, those who we think are higher up in the church. <laughs> um, so we tend to hang out with them a little bit more. So one pastor was talking about how he was an itinerant. So he goes around different well-known preacher. Um, and because he goes into a church, he usually goes out the back with the pastor at first, prays with them, works out how he's going to fit into the church service. Um, and his wife sits all alone in the church. And, and the wife has often commented that at the beginning of a church service, no one goes up and talks to me. Uh, hardly anyone comes up and, and says hello and tries to find out about me or anything like that. But she says, as soon as you finish preaching and you come back and sit down next to me, afterwards, everyone wants to know me. Everyone comes up to me and asks me about things and stuff like that. Um, and it's just by you know, association. Uh, with um, being well recognized in the church. What about the EU? Where do we see favoritism in the EU? This is getting really personal, a bit close to the bone, so you know, I can I can understand your hesitancy, but you know, we can handle it. Yeah. So people that we know and we tend to, you know, we do tend to have cliques and hang around people who are like us or, you know, similar schooling backgrounds and, you know, stuff like that. So we've got to be careful about that or or racial kind of divides or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it is a bit too close to home. Um, now. Let's have a look at James. Um, James uh, says the, the use of the word favoritism or some of the older translations have partiality. Um, and this really, the idea there is to treat people according to their outward appearance, physical appearance that is. Uh, whether they're good looking, gender, what gender they are, what race they are, uh, what social status they are. He actually gives us a, a little bit of a illustration later on of clear difference in social status, you know, the type of clothing they wear. Um, remember that um, God says in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So listen to this um, in the law of Moses, um, where God is speaking. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 16 and 17, Deuteronomy 10 verse 16 and 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and who accepts no bribes. 
He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Um, can you see how I think James picked up this idea and of uh, looking after orphans and widows back in chapter 1, verse 27? And, uh, and uh, he's really equated it because this um, flows out of the character of God who shows no partiality. 